der Triathlon Show 324. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, I interview Dr. Andy Kirkland. Andy is a triathlon coach, sports physiologist, and a lecturer in sports coaching at the University of Stirling. In this interview, Andy shares his perspectives on a number of topics related to coaching from his experience as a coach, as a coach educator, and as part of various high-performance environments. But before we get into the interview, big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Fuel and Hydration. Precision Fuel and Hydration have a range of tools and products to help you personalize your fueling and hydration strategy so that you can perform at your best in racing and in training. The key variables you need to figure out when it comes to optimizing your fueling and hydration include your carbohydrate intake, your sweat rate, and your sweat sodium concentration. And precision fuel and hydration have tools like the free online sweat test and the quick carb calculator to help you understand all of those and get a free strategy personalized to your numbers. You can then go even further and have a free one-to-one video consultation with the team at Precision Fuel and Hydration to get it really, really optimized and tuned to yourself as an individual. As a listener of the show, you also can get 15% off your first order of fueling and hydration products by using the code TTS22 at checkout at precisionfuelandhydration.com. And thank you to Zenate. The Zenate Indoor Swim Trainer is a swim bench that helps you improve your technique through optimizing your early catch. It helps you maximize propulsion for your more powerful stroke. And most importantly, it helps you stay consistent by doing swim workouts at home, even when you can't go to the pool uh, for either lack, lack of time availability or pools being closed or etc. etc. Uh, the Senate Swim Trainer is available in the UK, the EU and the US with free shipping within the UK and the US. And it is very affordable, similar to a pair of running shoes. And it's a completely risk-free investment because if you are not in love with the Senate Swim Trainer after two weeks of using it and using their free training program, you can send it back and get a full refund. Learn more and get a 20% discount on your Senate Swim Trainer on senateswimtrainer.com forward slash TTS. Now, without any further ado, let's get into the interview with uh, Dr. Andy Kirkland. Welcome to the Triathlon Show, Andy. How are you doing? Oh, good, Michael. Good. It's great to be here. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you. Uh, I want you to start by just introducing yourself to the audience. Tell us a bit more about who you are and uh, your background in coaching and, and also specifically your relation with triathlon. All right. So I'll start off with triathlon. I've, I've been in, involved in triathlon uh, since probably the mid-1990s as a decidedly average age group athlete uh, who was absolutely obsessed. Uh, I did Ironman when very few people had done Ironman, uh, and that really got me interested in becoming uh, something professional in sport. Uh, So since since that time, uh, I've had uh, quite a varied career, uh, but recently I've coached a few professional triathletes. I've worked in a number of local clubs, been 
involved with national governing bodies. So there's a whole mix of uh, things that I've done in triathlon. But uh, simple to say that it's part of who I am. Being a triathlete and being involved in triathlon is part of who I am. Uh, and I still do a bit of uh, swimming, biking and running, despite me getting on a bit now and being uh, quite a bit slower than I used to be. Yeah. So it's fair to say that triathlon is the, the your is that your main sport, would you say, uh, that you have as a as an athlete, well, as as an athlete or recreational athlete your, yourself, even though within coaching you have worked in many different domains than triathlon, as we'll get on to yes. that. Yeah. So triathlon is my main sport. I came to, uh, and my first sport was cycling, in fact. Mm. Uh, but like many triathletes, there was no chance that uh, I could handle a bike in a bunch. Uh, I would get dropped as soon as the bunch accelerated, uh, and road racing wasn't really for me. Uh, and I did a 10K for uh, fun and actually did it quite quickly. Uh, and then got dragged into uh, a swimming pool by uh, a triathlete who was a guy called Scott Balfour, in fact, multiple Kona finisher and sub-three-hour marathoner uh, when he was over 60. So Scott's a legend of triathlon in Scotland, where I'm from. Scott dragged me into the sport and encouraged me to start swimming. Uh, I'll give you my starting point. My first 400-metre time trial and I think week three of uh, swimming was 12 minutes and three seconds. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's that's one of the slower ones that I've heard of. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So over 12 minutes to do 400 meters. I'll never yeah. forget so yeah. that that was my starting point. At least you could. At least you could do it. I mean, there are plenty of people that that uh, I, and all kudos to them for then uh, getting to the point of completing an Ironman swim. But lot lots of people that can't swim twenty five meters when they start out. So, mm-hmm. so you you could mm-hmm. you could do the the distance at least. Yeah. 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 All right. And things. Well, yeah. So 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 what about your uh, the the wider uh, kind of your interest in coaching and your the work that you do in coaching? Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, so I think I have had an interesting journey in that when I came into the uh, profession, I started off as a a sports scientist working in high performance sport after doing quite a traditional journey, which we'll touch on a wee bit later. Well, Uh, well, we can we can we can touch on the journey now, actually. So you studied uh, you studied uh, exercise science and physiology. Is that right? Uh, yeah, so sports science, uh, so biomechanics, yep. psychology, physiology, a uh, bit of coaching thrown in, but it, it was a real sports science orientated degree. Uh, I loved it so much that I went on to study uh, a PhD r- relating to uh, exercise intensity and cycling performance, so looking at fatigue and physiological basis of fatigue. So I did that for too many years. It was a slow process. Uh, After that, I went into the Scottish Institute of Sport to work on as a physiologist across a number of programmes, including cycling, swimming, rugby, winter sports, multitude of different things, which was 
uh, great on many levels, not so much fun on other levels, a very challenging environment. And I'll definitely touch on that later and how, and some of my beliefs around coaching and how uh, coaches learn and so on. Uh, after that, I moved on to British Cycling, which was at the time one of the most successful governing bodies in the the world. So that was a fun time in Manchester, uh, just being based in the velodrome and having friends in that environment was the key experience for me. Uh, and I was a coach developer and a coach educator in that environment. So writing courses, delivering courses, uh, mentoring coaches and so on. And uh, that brings me up to the present day uh, where I think I found my perfect job in that I'm a lecturer in sports coaching at the University of Stirling. And what I do really in my day job is uh, work with professional level coaches from the grassroots up to uh, the very highest level of sport. Uh, So we like to talk on the programme that we've got someone from a Formula One motor racing team who works as uh, head of coaching in a pit lane crew. Uh, so we've got a huge diversity from grassroots community coaches through to uh, those on the very highest level performance programs in the world. Mm, yeah. And uh, so so that's actually my next question was going to be around uh, around your role there and, and the program. So So feel free to dive into a bit more detail around what the program is all about and, and also what your role within it is. Mm, well, my, my role is as a traditional lecturer in that uh, I'll deliver lectures, uh, provide supervision and so on. But we've got a quite, not a unique group of coaches, but we've got such a diverse group of coaches uh, that simply telling them what to do or what to know doesn't work because what works for uh, a football coach on an under nines program doesn't necessarily work on a uh, performance program at Olympic level. So, so what we primarily do is challenge coaches to ask why they do what they do, to explore alternative ways of coaching, uh, to consider how they evaluate their practice, Uh, and be really reflective on what they do. So I see my role as planting seeds uh, and planting lots of seeds and allowing the coaches to germinate the ones that are most meaningful to them. But it also means really pushing hard on them to challenge what I call the cultural status quo and how they coach in their environment. So as a triathlon coach, Uh, there's many commonalities throughout the world of how a triathlon coach would coach athletes, but it can be very different to uh, maybe on a kayak program, a sprint kayak program or a football program or a skiing program to people coach in different ways. So I I really encourage uh, others to explore different ways of coaching and not just to be like a, 
a sheep and follow the crowd and do what everyone else does in their own sport. Yeah. And, so that's and, amazing. Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, no, I, I was going to say that that's uh, that, that sounds fantastic. I mean, that, a lot of what coaching is about really is about being able to be reflective and and uh, think about your own process and improving uh, your process and and together with the athlete, uh, making taking one step at a time and and uh, getting gradually better at what you're doing in the context that you're working in. So so it sounds like that's what you're doing rather than giving direct answers uh which there aren't any because as you say contexts are so so different but i I was going to ask um the sports coaching program it's not something that i've heard uh that there exist that many of but maybe i'm mistaken i have just missed them but is is your program quite unique or are there plenty of them around at different universities Uh, it's probably somewhere in the middle so coaching programs are becoming more common Primarily at an undergraduate level, uh, but many universities have master's programs too. I think what's almost unique about ours is that coaches can study from anywhere in the world. So it's a distance program. So we're not doing it face to face. So it means that, uh, well, you say you're in, uh, in Lisbon. Portugal. Yep. Yeah. So uh, I had. Uh, one coach a few years ago from Portugal, another uh, who's up in the Alps, another in China, quite a few in Singapore. So it means that we bring that cultural mix in, uh, which is a real strength. And we've got a really tight team, uh, a, a teaching team. We actually like each other. <laughs> uh, which is great in a, a working environment. We like and respect each other. And we've got a cohesive program which looks at sporting performance and coaching performance from a number of different angles. But uh, we focus on the, the same things primarily. Why are you doing what you're doing? And how does that understanding shape how effective you are as a coach? Are you making a difference? Or are you just assimilating with those cultural status quos? So I think that that's what's, well, the unique selling point of what we do is not yeah. setting strict constraints or a traditional coach education pathway where you do a number of modules uh, in a number of areas and you're expected to repeat what the tutors told you. It's nothing yeah. like that. Yeah. No, that's that's how you create the status quo <laughs> that you said yeah. exists in many areas. Not how you yeah. uh, encourage people to um, to think about better ways to to do things. Um, so, no, knowing this now, which I didn't know before when I created the questions, so I'm going to to uh, adjust my next question a little bit. And uh, mm-hmm. basically, I want to ask you about uh, pathways into coaching, and just generally, what are your thoughts around? good pathways into coaching if somebody's listening to this and and maybe they maybe they're a high school student and they're they're interested in getting into coaching or wherever they might be in their career what what would you say are if somebody is interested in that are good pathways to getting into coaching whether they're thinking about being a premier league football coach or a professional triathlon coach or uh, a grassroots level um, kayaking coach or or something what what what, what's your opinion on that it's it's a really great question, and like uh, many really great questions, it's very difficult to answer because 
uh, in the UK, where I'm from and beyond, there's not clearly defined coaching pathways. So many coaches we see at the top level have got there uh, from being good athletes before, whereas others take quite different pathways. And I was actually thinking about uh, a chat I had with another triathlon coach uh, a few years back, in fact, and uh, we followed completely different pathways into coaching. So I was more academic, more high performance. Uh, He uh, learned what he did through doing and practical experience and working it out as he went along. And what was really interesting about that was that we had reached very similar conclusions about uh, what was needed uh, to coach effectively and some of our beliefs around coaching. Uh, I, I would suggest, though, that the ideal is to do as much coaching as you can. So experience, it's a craft process. We learn, and most coaches learn through doing and interacting and learning from others. So the best way to learn about being a coach is to do the job and to work at multiple different levels if you can. Now, my first coaching job wasn't even a coaching job. It was a teaching job. It was teaching uh, three-year-olds how to swim. Uh, and that taught me uh, a great deal about the basics of human emotions. For example, a three-year-old isn't very good at controlling their emotions. When they get to about four or five, they may be better at articulating themselves. But if you're not doing a very good job, a three-year-old or a five-year-old will disengage or tell you that, it's boring or start misbehaving. Uh, so you very quickly decide what works and what doesn't work and with a uh, very uh, young, uh, I was going to say athletes, they're not athletes, very young children. I've also worked in community clubs and in high performance. And I think getting that diversity of experience in different areas and learning your trade really well is very important. Uh, What is really good about what I do in my day job is that I work with coaches who bring experiences like that to the academic world in which they've already got a, a pretty good understanding of what coaching means to them and what's involved in their job. Uh, And when they get to that stage, we can start to check and challenge their practices. And that way, the learning uh, can be very rapid and the change can be very dramatic too. So I I think a mix of uh, practical experience and maybe a higher level degree is a good way about uh, going through it because it maybe undergraduate level, some of the learning uh, isn't built upon uh, experience. It may be more theory dependent. Uh, so yeah, a combination of practical experience uh, and being really inquisitive. Yeah. Yeah. So, so just to uh, repeat that for the listeners, 
to make sure that uh, they get the context. Your program is a is a master's uh, program, mm-hmm. master's level program. And also, I think that correct me if I'm wrong, but I checked the website and and I think it said that uh, the the uh, the students are expected to have uh, five years of coaching experience under their belt when they start the program. Or was that just that mm-hmm. that's the average level? Maybe not a requirement per se. That that's a rule of thumb. Uh, yeah, but important in terms of learning is pre-existing knowledge so it it may be that we've got uh someone who has transferred from a business environment you know they've done a a normal job and decided well i really love sport and i want to leave the corporate world so they may have been a senior manager in industry and bring with them lots of uh coaching skills that can be transferred into sport so they may come with two years experience but be able to demonstrate a deeper level of coaching practice maybe in uh, a different industry yeah yeah and Mm. well so this is going to probably going to be another quite difficult question perhaps but um, in terms of again looking at academic options because i'm sure there are some listeners that are interested in hearing about that Let's say you have somebody who is thinking about pursuing a master's degree in in sports science or exercise mm-hmm. physiology, but now they're thinking, hmm, maybe I would like to pursue my master's degree in uh, sports coaching instead. Mm-hmm. What would you say are the pros and cons or scenarios in which one might be better than the other? Oh, that, that's a really difficult question. Uh, and based on my reflections, I, Thinking back to my experiences going through the sports science pathway is that uh, I developed some really great tools uh, in my coaching uh, in terms of needs analysis. So that's understanding the demands of the sport, being able to measure these demands, being able to prioritize them uh, and being able to decide what is an important measurement and what's not an important measurement and thinking about things like if we're doing a performance test how does it relate to the sport how do we use that data to influence the behavior of the performer and so on and are are we uh producing valid and reliable uh, data to base their decisions on. So these are fundamental tools in my coaching toolbox. But also there's a philosophical uh, perspective in that learning within a sports science discipline teaches you to think perhaps in a more reductionist way. Uh, so looking at single causation. So in Many of the listeners will be familiar with uh, VO2 max as a measurement that you may use in sports science. Uh, But that's actually quite a complex uh, number that takes nuance to apply effectively in the performance environment. So it's understanding how that measurement fits into the big picture and how you use the data to influence your coach decision-making is really important. And there's a deep philosophical basis to how we create knowledge surrounding things, whether it relates to science, 
social science or how we understand the world. Yeah. So, so I, what's the answer to my question? Your question. Uh, I would say that uh, the skills of or an effective coach who understands sports science can probably operate uh, autonomously from sports scientists most of the time, or if they want to engage with sports scientists. Uh, they can uh, guide uh, what they expect from the sports scientist. And what I mean by that was many of the times when I was working in that performance environment, I would be expected to go and test a whole lot of things on a performance program. In my toolbox was lactate testing, VO2 max testing, efficiency testing. I would have my tools in my toolbox and I would apply many of them regardless of what the sport was. And most of the time, the coaches didn't know what I was talking about and let me get on with it uh, without really understanding what I was doing, why I was doing it, and how to use what I was doing within what they did as a coach. So I would suggest that the key is what you choose to study is dependent on uh, what you want to do. If you want to be a coach, probably come on a program like ours or do another coaching program. If you want to be a sports scientist, learn about sports science, but also key, and it's a really difficult one, is to consider the philosophical basis of science, how you create your knowledge, how it can be applied in the real world, what are the strengths and weaknesses of the approaches you're using? And many of the ways of doing that relate more to coaching and human interaction than they do to maybe the traditional sports science programs. Mm, yeah, no, that's that's a good answer. And uh, then uh, moving on a bit from the whole academic pathways discussion, uh, I want to pick your brains a little bit on some some coaching related topics. And uh, first of all, uh, as we can already tell from some of the things that uh, you've been saying here, uh, I think it, it seems pretty clear that you you are quite you're taking quite a holistic view uh, to coaching. And I would like to ask you how you would describe that approach and and what are the different domains that you think a coach needs to have at least some knowledge in to be to be able to really be effective as a coach all right so it's a really interesting question and what uh coaching in in my sphere is often described as being complex dynamic and ever-changing because coaching is influencing the behavior of others it involves human interaction and if we were to be having this discussion, say, on a, a, a medical podcast, for example, we might not be talking about holistic practice. We would talk about using a biopsychosocial framework. And that means exploring the interaction between, between biological and physiological processes, i.e. how the body works, mental processes and how humans think, and then social is the interaction between humans. So that holistic biopsychosocial perspective really means considering the bio, the psycho, and the social 
in all our coaching practices. Uh, so, so we, so, so, so we need to have some knowledge about all of those domains. Is that, is that yeah, so it, yes, uh, I would suggest that uh, knowing more about uh, behavior change, which is an area that I do in my research, uh, is really important. So, what we do as coaches is influence the behavior of others if we're effective, and we influence their behavior positively if we're good at what we do. But there's very good science behind behavior change. And there's one really good uh, model that explains different components. Uh, and for us to change the behavior of other people, we first, firstly must know what their capabilities are, both physical and mental. Uh, we must know what their opportunities for change are and what their motivations are. So before we even decide to do anything, understanding these capabilities, opportunities and motivations is uh, key in deciding what, how we want to interact with those individuals to help them be better performers. And that, that's guided by another area of science that hasn't really uh, come into sport as of uh, yet. So... Uh, I think that's key is that sometimes we focus on the performance enhancement, the physiological stuff, when in fact what we do is behaviour change. And uh, much of uh, the practice of coaches on behaviour change isn't guided by evidence, isn't guided by science. It's just made up as we go along. Uh, we talk about soft skills. But those soft skills can be uh, very well described and developed through different scientific approaches that haven't come into sport very much. So, so that's a, a key area for me is maybe forgetting about, not forgetting about them, but uh, recognising how important social interactions and behaviour change are in coaching practice. Because that's what coaches do if they're good at what they do. Yeah. If, if you have uh, one example each of a good resource, interactory, relatively interactive resource you recommend to coaches on uh, social interactions and uh, behavioral change, for example, like a popular scientific book or something, something like that, do, do you have something like that? Would you be able to, to give, uh, uh, give one of each? Well, I suppose... It, some of these things could be summarized in the behavioral change wheel from uh, Susan Mishi and others. So it can be summarized in a picture. I know mm. sometimes as coaches, we like pictures and like things to be as simple as possible and not involve reading lots of things. The behavioral change wheel of Mishi et al. Uh, so that's M-I-C-H-I-E. And that's readily available on uh, the internet. It is a really, really good resource to understand these things. Hmm. That it's funny that you should talk about behavioral change because actually this very morning, as we're recording this, I had a we had a call with with the other coaches in the scientific triathlon coaching group, and we were discussing um, what whether there are there are what what the things are that you can do when an athlete is not training consistently when when there's like periods of 
things maybe going maybe they are training consistently but then it's always followed by periods of very inconsistent training or no training at all and and what you can do as a coach in that situation and and uh, yeah i gotta say we we left we left that discussion i think with with lots of questions and very few answers but maybe maybe we can find something in that for example in that wheel or by digging deeper into the behavioral change sciences so so it's uh, very very timely that you should mention that no, I think so. Uh, and I, I know you sent me other questions of how we can apply this to age groupers or whatever, how we coach age groupers. And when I'm working with athletes, what's key to me is they're understanding what their capability, their understanding of performance is, what their performance behaviours are and who they're influenced by. Uh, so I'm sure you'll have experienced this as well. You, you may be suggesting uh, a particular way of training to an athlete, but they're working with other, well, in the context I've worked with, uh, training with other professional athletes who are doing something really different. So that brings a doubt into the mind of the athletes. They challenge the coach saying, is the coach uh, right? Am I doing what's best for me? So it's, where their beliefs are coming from and how they understand performance themselves is uh, really important uh, before we even start to say uh, my way is better. It may be that through discussing these things with athletes, as a coach, you get a greater insight into what they're doing, why they're doing it. And it may mean that uh, we challenge our own ways of coaching. Or we may find a, a, a different way to uh, coach the athlete. Another important thing is to recognize that humans aren't always logical or rational. They do daft things for uh, unknown reasons. If we apply behavioral change to uh, health, no one... All we would need to do to stop smoking is to tell people to stop smoking, and they would because uh, everyone knows that smoking kills you and it's not good for your health and it makes you feel rubbish. So if we were to apply a traditional model of coaching, it would be, oh, right, I, I want you to stop smoking, and if you do, your performance will get better. That's all well and good, but there's other things at play that prevent people from stopping smoking. It's the same with saying, I want year. An athlete is training too hard, for example, consistently training too hard. Uh, so simply telling them to do less doesn't work. It, it rarely works. It, it may take months or even years to influence the, their behaviours so that uh, they, they're not overtraining, for example. And there's a deeper psychological reasons for them training in the way they do and some of them aren't rational and that takes time to uh explore and find out what what might you if if you uh, give some some quick tips for in that example of an athlete constantly training too hard what what might be some things that you would you would ask them or you would uh you would tell them to to help get get past the problem you can use me as a guinea pig let's say i'm your athlete and i'm constantly training too hard 
so uh, I would uh, ask Michael. So I would say along the lines of I, th- I think that you are training too hard and we're not seeing the uh, progression in your performance. Uh, why, why is it you train in the way you do? Well, this guy and that guy beat me in my last races and they're training harder than I do. So if I'm going to beat them in the next race, then I need to train at least as hard as as them, if not harder, if I'm going to be able to get faster than them. So, so Michael, what evidence have you got to say that they are training harder than you? I can see it on their Strava accounts. Okay, okay. And... Uh, have you heard about uh, the uh, dose response to exercise? No. All right. So have you heard about uh, the dose response to uh, human growth hormone? No. All right. So how about uh, a common medicine you, you might have in your uh medicine cabinet at home so if you take a paracetamol uh for your headache uh do you think that'll work uh yes quite often uh and so what is there a an instance that you might take for paracetamol um no (laughs) i can't think of so why would that be uh i think that would be too much and Possibly dangerous. All right. So, would you take uh, ten paracetamol in any case? Definitely instant? not. Definitely not. All right, because that would probably kill you, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, we've got a dose response to exercise as well. Is that uh, when we start off uh, taking something or doing exercise, the dose uh, to result in change in their performance? Uh, could be relatively low for us to get better. But as uh, we progress and do more and more, we will subsequently uh, or often need uh, more more of a dose of training to get better. But then there comes a time where uh, sometimes you need that feeling to be doing more, to think you need that more to be better. But like a paracetamol, if you do more and more and more, uh, it's likely to be damaging to your health. So we've got to find that individual dose response for you. And I would say that it's the minimum dose possible to maximize the physiological adaptation uh, for you that really counts. So it doesn't matter what people are doing in your environment. I would suggest that most athletes overtrain anyway. Many only present uh, their key workout sessions on Strava, ones they're proud about. What the pros do and what they talk about in the magazines are their hardest week ever in their uh, lives. So that the reality between what others are doing and what you're doing we don't really understand what lots of what other athletes talk about them doing is bullshit. They're not actually doing that consistently. It's an ego thing. So what we need to do is find the right dose for you. Uh, there, there's uh, two ways of doing that. First of all, 
is to trust in the coach. So I'll help you find that uh, right dose. Or you can go and continue to train the way that you want to and we'll monitor uh, performance. And if you continue to get uh, better and start winning things and beating these other athletes, then uh, you've proved me wrong. But if you become injured, you break, or your performance isn't getting better, uh, that poses the question, uh, are you doing too much? Or do you actually think doing even more will result in the change you need uh, to get better? Mm. All right. You've given me a lot to think about. Maybe maybe we'll uh, try to scale it down a little bit and I'll, I'll go a bit easier and see how things go. But that process, I would often take six months to go through yeah. that process. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, sometimes allowing athletes to break allowing them to go and do their own thing, to give them autonomy, to make their own coaching decisions whilst giving guidance to say, well, I'm not so sure. I think you're doing too much. But if you think that's the best way, let's go with it and uh, we'll see what happens. Mm. And more often than not, the athlete breaks or they don't get better. and Yeah. Uh, and it comes back uh, to me saying, well, I told you so. And me putting on that smug coaching face, saying, "Well, I told you all along." Well, that leads us to uh, to the next topic, uh, which is the you know, good coach athlete relationship. You mentioned a couple of things; they're already relating to that. But uh, before we get there, was there anything else, any other area, just that you want to list off that you think coaches should have have a grasp of, other than the ones we already talked about? And uh, without going into detail, but if, if you have any any one particular area that you want to list off that you think is often missed that coaches should investigate a little bit more. Well, I'll bring it in. So there's a real biophysiological bias in triathlon, for example. So we f- focus on the physical development with maybe the development of VO2 max, lactate thresholds, and so on. Uh, I would suggest that through my study and understanding an area called oxygen uptake kinetics. So that's a dynamic response of oxygen uptake, which relates to VO2 max, gives us the underpinning knowledge uh, behind uh, training intensity. And what that study has taught me is that there's, or I certainly believe that there's not a need for strict adherence to training zones and that a lot of the science and physiology is based on constant, uh, a constant intensity. So a constant power output, a constant running pace. But in reality, we're out in, uh, the, the world dealing with hills, wind, all a different manner of things. So that understanding the underpinning physiology behind exercise intensity and not just accepting what's in most of the textbooks is a real key area for me. I think that underpins how I prescribe exercise intensity. It's not from... uh textbooks it's from a deep understanding of physiological responses during exercise which is not necessarily reflected in most textbooks 
but there's a few papers in oxygen uptake kinetics that really help with that. So I, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think what you're getting at there is that sometimes there is a, we have a false, we, we think there is a false precision to adhering strictly to a training zone or, or a power target or, or some, some target, pace target or something like that. And, uh, and in the real world, it's, uh, it's almost impossible to have that level of, of precision uh, when, when you understand what's going on under the hood. Uh, is, is that what you're, uh, what you're describing there? Yes, we're dealing with complex systems that athletes feel different from day to day. Heart, respo- heart rate responses are different from day to day. Substrate utilization, so whether we're using carbs uh, or fat, the proportion is different from day to day, dependent on the interaction of lots of different things. So because of that noise, uh, precision, uh, I don't believe is that important. And there's good science that explains why that's the case. Yeah, and, and that's the, uh, the the oxygen kinetics that you... And I've, I know you have an article, I think, was it on Training Peaks or on your website? I did skim through it a little bit, but basically where you explain uh, that yeah, variations in, in power output and so on will lead to uh, um, basically, well, you, you're filling the gap of energy with, for example, anaerobic sources when even when you're technically in an aerobic training zone and so, so on. So uh, I, I, is that the gist of the, the physiological underpinning of what you're saying? Uh, that's exactly it. Yeah. In that uh, there's no such thing as uh, aerobic intensity or anaerobic intensity. Both systems are switched on all the time. So, uh, and with, yeah. so, so, how do you prescribe workouts for your athletes? Uh, in a multitude of different ways, depending on what the purpose of the session is, and it could go simply based on uh, pace. So, I've recently uh, been working with a. a a pro athlete, and we know what sort of times they need to do in particular events, uh, so that and I, I would know what power output is required uh, and what running pace and what swimming pace is required to achieve these demands. So prescription will relate to the demands of the event. So race pace, Ironman race pace, for example, uh, we would be setting power outputs based on what would need to be sustainable for uh, five hours, for example, yep. or uh, the pace it takes to run a marathon. So we would use race pace as a starting point and uh, bring it up or bring it down depending on what we want to achieve through the session. So, so that's one way. Uh, the other is uh, rating of perceived exertion. I'll usually say on a scale of 1 to 10, with 1 being easy and 10 being as hard as you've ever gone before, we can use that. It doesn't need to be difficult. But I would rarely say, uh, for example, this is a VO2 max session because, first of all, we would be measuring VO2 max in that session. And secondly, uh, we don't know whether or is a VO2 max session is very different depending on what 
age and stage of development you're at uh, in the performance pathway, how long you've been training, uh, and, and so on. So that terminology, knowing the underpinning science, doesn't make sense to me. Mm, yeah, yeah, got it. Uh, and and that that all makes sense. M- makes sense to me. Uh, then moving on to discussing uh, the coach athlete relationship, what do you think are the attributes uh, that are needed for to have such uh, to have a good coach athlete relationship, and also what attributes do the coach and the athlete need to have for that to be a possibility? Mm, It's a really good question. And I would liken it to probably, it would be good having some sort of coach-athlete dating site, not that I'm advocating dating athletes. But how how would you select uh, a partner, for example, someone that you want a long-term relationship with? And firstly, you've got to like them. There's got, you've got to be able to engage and in, in like a person. And for, for the relationship to be lasting, you need openness, integrity, uh, trust. The, these things that uh, determine effective relationships. And it is openness, integrity, respect for each other are absolutely uh, key. I would say from my coaching perspective as well, and I'm not coaching so much now, but my time's very valuable to me so that uh, if I want, I'm going to spend four hours on my Sunday prescribing training for someone, I'm not bothered about the money. Uh, I I really well, need to like them and want them to succeed and I need to, uh, want to give up my time away from my own partner to help someone else. So that level of respect is needed uh, too. And I, what else was I thinking about? Uh, I'm just checking my uh, notes, Michael, because I've forgotten about the other bit that I had. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, let's see. I can't find it now. So it's completely gone out of my head, but it'll uh, come back to me. Well, I, I do think that some smart listener is already working on that coach athlete, not dating, but find each other app that, that you suggested. <laughs> That's probably a business I've idea. Rem- I've, just remembered it. <laughs> I've just remembered it. And this might sound absolutely ridiculous, but for a coach, I think it's absolutely critical to like people to like other human beings. And that may sound daft, but having worked in a number of performance environments, I've seen coaches who obviously don't like human beings. Uh, They're not very nice to them in many cases. I've seen it quite prevalent in swimming, for example. So you need to like people. Mm -hmm. I absolutely love people engaging with people and I want to help them achieve their potential. Simple. That's what drives me to be a coach is helping others reach their potential. Yeah. And it's about dropping my ego as well. It's not about me. It's about helping others. Mm. Do you have any, when when an athlete is interested in starting working with you as a coach, are there any questions that you ask the athlete that, that you need to know from the athlete uh, to information that you basically need 
to know about them or like to ask them their opinion of or how they how how they are as a personality for you to know that okay this is likely to be a good relationship or this is probably not going to be such a good relationship well i'll certainly not take someone on overnight uh usually suggest that uh we'll have a few weeks of speaking to each other having a few meetings chatting about stuff building rapport and trust because in an initial meeting you're getting to know someone uh athletes may want to tell me how good they are and how great at training they'll be and how they want to be world champion but it takes time for me to understand whether they're being realistic and whether they've got the capability of doing these things too uh so my my process is typically a trial period uh of a few months seeing how what training they've previously been doing how good they are at giving feedback uh how good the interactions are in their chats lots of different things and then uh over that period I would build up a picture of strengths and weaknesses in that athlete and invariably uh, at the end of the process we would decide together whether we wanted to work together or not. It's got to be a mutual uh, process in which we both consent to work with each other. Uh, I will walk away from someone, not even entertain a discussion unless I see evidence that they've done uh, their homework that they've spoken to other coaches because you wouldn't just go on an internet dating site and pick the first person you you saw a picture that you quite liked or someone with the uh, best CV uh, to build a long lasting relationship you would want to check what the options are and that's what I would expect as a coach from prospective athletes that they explore their options mm, yeah and uh from a coach's perspective uh other than actually having to like people and some of the other things we already mentioned is there anything else if, if you have one 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 final tip that you could give for being able to form good coach athlete relationships to coaches uh what would that be don't be a dick <laughs> that, that's quite a blunt one but don't be a dick uh is, it is about being do, do you, do you think, is, is, is it that prominent in coaching that coaches are being dicks <laughs> uh what do you think well to, I, i'm lucky enough to to mostly know know really great coaches so maybe i'm uh blissfully ing- ignorant of it but no i i i know what you're i know what you're getting at of course there is a lot of yeah. there's a lot of it going on in the industry so yeah, yeah. Uh, i i think that's the a, a great rule of uh life yeah yeah uh, all right um well then let me see here and then just we, we already talked a bit about physiology so i'm going to skip that question that is the next next on our list uh and and jump straight to uh other than this general tips for coaches on how they can improve their coaching practices and increase their quote-unquote expertise as coaches and this can be 
direct tips to directly improve their practice or it can also be tips for how they can develop themselves as coaches or uh, anything of that nature do, do you have any things that you would like to share uh on on that i would say look for inspiration in everything you do uh so i i learn lots about my own coaching practice through engaging with the arts and Uh, so going to art exhibitions, going to presentations and so on and looking for things that I can apply to understand the world and people that operate within it more effectively. Uh, I also told you at the beginning that the new puppy uh, may interrupt uh, and fortunately she's not. But I'm learning so much about uh, coaching from trying to teach a puppy how to do stuff. So it's getting inspiration from things like that. So I can say sit sit in um, five, six different ways. And the puppy will only respond if I say sit in the tone that it understands. So I'm learning about coaching from uh, trying to teach a puppy the basics, the importance of tone of voice, the importance of eye contact, the importance of posture at a level that probably going on a coaching course would never teach me if if I get it wrong the the puppy will bite me or pee in the corner or just not listen at all uh, so it's to look at for inspiration in absolutely everything you do and everything you engage within and and don't be constrained by reading every book about triathlon for example that's Uh, it's useful to read one or two, but after a while, a lot are repetitive. Look for new things. Be open-minded uh, and uh, don't look for simple uh, top tips to be better. It's just be open-minded and engaged with the world. Mm. Yeah, no, that, that's really great. And, and as you said at the beginning, uh, challenge the status quo. Uh, so yeah, and to do that, obviously you need to be open-minded and, and open to new ideas, not just ideas that you get but uh, to, from somebody, but that you create yourself by how you engage with the world. So, so that's mm -hmm. really good. Uh, what about uh, tips for athletes? I, now I'm going to ask you for tips, even though you said that you shouldn't be looking for tips, but <laughs> I'm going to do it anyway. So, so uh, just some uh, piece of advice for age group triathletes that want to improve their performance. What, what would you tell them? So, first of all, I, I would, same for coaches, in fact, is to ask yourself the question, why are you following the approach you're following? Is that the best way? And what are the alternatives? Uh, the second one is never to, this is typical me, but never to accept things on face value. Be very careful in uh trusting sources of information about training and uh, thirdly be challenging and continue to ask questions just ask questions of people all the time and make up your mind for yourself uh, for most age group uh, athletes I think in 
continuing to enjoy the sport, recognising that it's not about life and death. It's about enjoyment. And unless you're going to be a world champion, think about other things in, in life too. In fact, even if you want to be world champion, other things in life are really important. Sport isn't everything. Uh, just consistently enjoy what you do. And when you're not enjoying it, look for different ways uh, of of training to retain that joy. I, I still train. I still love training. And I'm continually thinking of different ways uh, of doing it to keep me engaged, what, 30 odd years later after I started. Mm. Do you have any examples of, of uh, just some things that you've done, how you've changed up your training a bit just for the sake of enjoyment uh, at some point or these 30 years, like some things that you've maybe taken up for a period to keep things fun and engaging when you've been just bored of the typical stuff? Mm, yeah, first of all uh, is that I can't remember the last time I was in a swimming pool. Uh So it's doing all my swimming open water and finding different environments and being excited if I see a jellyfish or a starfish, uh, being able to go out in big waves, going out in challenging uh, conditions. It just brings so much excitement. Also limiters to that as well, i.e. swimming too slow too often. But doing things in different environments for me is key uh i know you're going to ask a question about uh a great resource or something to read and i i took uh great inspiration from a book by michael crawley and it's called out of thin air in that book uh michael uh i met him a couple of years ago when just before i went to uh Kenya, in fact. So I was going up to the Rift Valley to do some research on Kenyan runners. And uh, I read an article in a newspaper by Michael, uh, who had been exploring uh, runners in Ethiopia, in Addis Ababa. So Michael helped me quite a bit in doing some of the work I did in in Kenya. Uh, And he was doing a PhD in anthropology on Ethiopian runners at the time and then he wrote a book out of thin air it's an amazing book and he talked about how the Ethiopians use their environments they use their GPSs in different ways so the GPS isn't to hit a pace it's to uh, run they often use their GPS to run as slowly as possible Uh, they don't necessarily use paths when they go out running. They'll follow the environment, which is best for their uh, training. So that's influenced me as well, is going out on a run instead of the out and back 15 kilometres at, say, five minutes per kilometre pace, something like that. It's meant running in a park, running around trees, running through mud, uh doing different things on that long run in different environments and taking my camera with me. I do photography. So stopping if I wanted to take a picture and it just, 
it's just a different way of training. But if we look at maybe Ethiopian running performances, they're pretty handy at what they do. It's just a different way of thinking about uh, how to construct a training session. Yeah, yeah. Michael Crowley was uh, was on the podcast, and I, I read his book, and uh, yeah, I agree, it's great. And and we talked about that, so I'll link to it in the show notes for for the listeners if if they've missed it. Uh, but yeah, really, really agree uh, with with all of that. That's great. Um, then, is there any one thing that you're currently really interested in and learning more about as a coach or a coach educator so can you tell us about yeah one one thing that that keeps you uh keeps you busy with with learning and fascination at the moment oh one thing that that's really difficult i've already spoken about getting a puppy and how that influences what i do but it's learning about how to coach a different creature uh most it's funny, in my world, I'm constantly reading things as part of my job, as part of my research. So that uh, continuous professional development just happens. Mm. It happens through conversations with other coaches too. So it's really not intentional. Uh, I, I would say where I, I learn more about things is maybe in my photography. I, I do a lot of photography. Uh and learning how to do that, how to use the technology, how to frame things, how to interpret your environment. Uh, I, I would use that. Some of these skills are directly transferable into coaching. Uh, I use an example. I went to watch some whitewater kayaking with a, a, a coach. Uh, and through my photography and framing different segments of the course and looking at performance at different levels really meant I could engage in a sport that I didn't have a clue about and demonstrate a deep understanding of a sport that I had no experience of through photography, just framing shots and understanding these snapshots and asking questions. Uh, So I've not got that one. It, it's again. It comes back yeah. to being open, find inspiration in everything. Yeah. No. Uh, uh, that's 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 perfectly fine. And and I think that's maybe uh, maybe the title of the episode, <laughs> or at least the the, <laughs> the main takeaway is is uh, yeah, being open minded and and finding inspiration around you and and uh, learning from engaging with the world in different ways. So that's really great. And uh, then finally, let's do the rapid fire question. So uh, take just one sentence to answer each of these. And the first one, yeah, maybe you've already answered that, but in that case, just repeat it. What is your favorite book or resource? Yeah, right now it is uh, Michael Crawley out of thin air. All right. And what's an important habit that you have benefited from athletically, professionally, or personally? Uh, getting a life and uh, doing things away from sport intentionally. And finally, who's somebody that you look up to or that has inspired you? I've got three people in triathlon. One is Darren Smith, who you may have heard of. Yep. yep. Uh, the second you definitely have heard of, uh, David Tilbury Davis, yep. who's quite an eminent coach and a really good friend as well uh and someone everyone will have heard of is chrissy wellington 
So I've had quite a lot of interaction with Chrissy over the last few years. And I've got such a deep respect for that woman away from our triathlon performances. So Chrissy's just an incredible human being. Yeah, um, I, I don't know her, but I did uh, read her book as well, her autobiography. And I think it's it's still one of the best sort of autobiographies in general that I've read. But definitely in terms of triathlon, it's just uh, an inspirational book, if anything. And she's, she actually exemplifies a lot of the things that you've been talking about with how she got into triathlon from a very different background, doing things like the mountain bike trekking in Nepal and and all of those sorts of things, and then mm-hmm. to come back and be really competitive in in races off of just that those sort of long long bike rides in Nepal. Um, it's been a while since I read it, but but fantastic fantastic book, and and of course, yeah, everybody everybody knows Chrissy Wellington, legend of the sport. Yeah. Well, I actually uh, got to know her through helping her write her second book, the the more coaching orientated one. So I I, I helped with a few chapters, uh, and it was quite a process. In that, Chrissy never takes no for an answer, or asks why have you written that instead of this? Are you sure you're right? She's absolutely relentless in her quest for perfection. And then I was reviewing stuff written by other people as well and having to carefully uh, provide feedback to suggest "Mm, (laughs) there's some problems there. But it's just the humility these interactions uh, were in. Just such a great person uh, to work with, but also really challenging, someone that pushes you to your absolute uh, max and you just can't be complacent with someone like Chrissy so yeah she's a complete inspiration and it's nothing to do with how fast uh, she's able to do an Ironman Mm, yeah well uh, finally uh, Andy where can people follow you and uh, if they want to reach out to you or learn more about the uh, the program at the, the coaching program at the University of Sterling uh, can you uh, give us some uh, yeah, some information around that right really easy so in terms of following me I'm quite active on Twitter so it's Andy Kirkland 71 I'm giving away my age there on Twitter. And it's very easy to find out a little bit about the coaching program on the University of Stirling website. So uh, all you need to do is Google Performance Coaching MSC, University of Stirling, and it will take you to the page. And it's really easy to find me as well. So if any of the listeners have got any questions about the program, drop me an email if you're seriously considering coming on it, then I'm more than happy to uh, spend uh, time discussing more about the program. Yeah, and as you mentioned already, it is a remote learning program, so open to people uh, from all over the world. Um, and uh, yeah, you're a good follow on Twitter, so definitely uh, I encourage uh, people uh, people to to follow you. And uh, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast and uh, share your views on coaching. It's been really, really uh, insightful, and uh, I appreciate all of the uh, all of the wisdom that you've shared. And I uh, hope to talk to you again soon. Thanks very much, Michael. Pleasure.
I hope that you enjoyed that interview. As always, you can find the show notes on scientifictriathlon.com with links to Andy's website, Twitter, and university profiles. Also, some episodes and books we mentioned, including interviews that I've done with Michael Crawley and Mark Burnley will be linked there, and the books uh, of by Michael Crawley and Chrissy Wellington that we talked about as well. If you're looking to take your triathlon to the next level, then consider getting a coach or getting a training plan. We have both options available on scientifictriathlon.com, so go and have a look there and see if it is for you. Also, I'm happy to answer questions that you might have if you need further details. Just email me on michael.scientifictriathlon.com. Next Monday on the podcast, we have Dr. Marco Altini back on the show with new science and up-to-date best practices regarding heart rate variability, HRV, as our topic. So that will be really interesting. Make sure that you are subscribed to the podcast so you don't miss anything and can get the show as it is released every Monday. Finally, big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Fuel and Hydration, that you can find on precisionfuelandhydration.com. Use their free online sweat test and their quick carb calculator to understand your fluid, electrolyte, and carbohydrate needs and individualize your plan. And book a free video consultation with the team to refine your strategy. Use the code TTS22 at checkout for 15% off your first order of fueling and hydration products. And thank you to Senate. Use the Senate Swim Trainer to improve your technique, power, stamina, and most importantly, your swim training consistency. Get 20% off your order on the Swim Trainer with a promo code that you can get on senatesimtrainer.com for slash TTS. And don't forget that it's a risk-free investment. If you don't love it after two weeks, send it back and you'll get a full refund. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.